Hello, I'm Sam Eamon, and this is the fourth episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing the formation of the first Doyle. Why are we a war podcast uh, talking about the formation of a political body? Two reasons. One, when you're considering asymmetrical warfare, especially things like civil wars, um, resistance movements, revolutionary movements, and even terrorism, you have to consider the political dimension that these groups are, are operating in. Oftentimes, these units fight because they are trying to create an alternative government or alternative answer to um, whatever's going on in their environment. So in terms of Ireland, the rebels in 1916 were rebelling because they wanted to break away from British rule. I mean, even with 1916, they they read the the proclamation of the Irish Republic, um, which is a very clear political document. In Ireland, it's kind of always been this way, but in Ireland, politics and violence goes hand in hand, and so you can't talk about the IRA if you don't understand the political structure that had been built around it. Um, and that was supporting it during the Anglo-Irish War. The second reason is by talking about the Doyle, we talk about the struggles that occurred amongst the leadership of the IRA, the IRB, and then the Irish cabinet, which affects how the war is fought, particularly in 1921, and it's going to lead into the split that occurs um, after the treaty is signed. So what is the Doyle? The Doyle is Ireland's first parliamentary body. It comes out of two events that we talked about in prior episodes. So the first one is the creation of the Sinn Féin party by Arthur Griffith, which was a party that was fighting for Irish independence, and they believed in parliamentary absenteeism. Parliamentary absenteeism said that you would run in an election, but you wouldn't sit in British Parliament because British Parliament was um, illegitimate. It also came out of the 1918 election results. So Sinn Féin ran in that election. They had been gaining momentum since 1916. But I, I don't think they knew how well they were going to do. Um, I think they end up winning 70-ish seats, blowing the IPP, the Irish Parliamentary Party, out of the water. So IPP only wins six, and they used to be the dominant party in Ireland. And even the Unionists, I think they win about 23 or 26 seats. However, because they won't sit in British Parliament... They have all this political power and this goodwill from the people, but they don't. They can't do anything with it. And so um, I think it's on January 9th, there's a private meeting of some of the members who had won election who were not in jail. Um, and they decide that they're going to, they're going to create an Irish parliament. And so on January 21st, 1919, they have a public meeting in the round room of the Mansion House in Dublin. Only 27 members um, attend the meeting because 34 of them are either in jail or they're on secret missions. It was organized by Pirius Basley, um, who later became a huge source of uh, propaganda for the IRA. Um, and he kept an interesting journal as well that really detailed the many different characters of the, uh, the Irish struggle. It was both a huge affair, but also... A very quick affair, and it was quick because they were afraid of being raided. Like I said, only 27 people were there, and they didn't even have the president, because the president, the president of Sinn Féin was de Valera, and everyone just assumed he would also be president of the Doyle. But like I said, he was in jail, so Castle Braga had to take over as chairperson, and he was very quick and kind of very businesslike. So at the meeting, 
they do a couple of things that are very important. They create the Doyle Constitution. Which basically says you have one president and five ministers. De Valera is maybe president. Cathal, as I said, was co-chair. Minister of Finance was Eamon McNeil. Minister for Home Affairs was Michael Collins. Minister for Foreign Affairs was Count Plunkett. And then Minister of National Defense was Richard Mulcahy. They also uh, announced the Declaration of, of um, Independence, which is very similar to the Declaration of the Irish Republic, which was read by Patriot Pierce during Easter Rising, and it kind of just formalizes that declaration into an official policy for the Doyle. They also issue a message to the free nations of the world asking countries like America, France, and I think they include, included Russia at this point, would recognize Ireland's right to have a republic and to also recognize the Doyle as or as representative of the Irish Republic. Um, and then they also issued the Democratic Program, which detailed the economic and social principles that were going to be adopted by the Doyle. But it was more of a propaganda piece, because they just didn't have the capabilities to implement anything that they uh, wanted to implement. The meeting of the first Doyle was held on the same day as the Soldo Headbed ambush, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But it's important because it's the first first real attack on British troops um, organized by the Irish volunteers, and it's traditionally seen as the first engagement of the Anglo-Irish War. So what did the first meeting accomplish? Why is it so important? The biggest accomplishment really is that it creates a potential governmental apparatus that the Irish rebels can use to undermine British control. If you know anything, again, about rural warfare, terrorism, you know, insurgencies, picket, you name it, there's two battles that have to be fought. One is to defeat the opponent, but the other is for the hearts and minds of the population. And any small arms unit that is fighting against a bitter army, you know, governmental army or anything like that, needs the support of the people. If they don't have the support of the people, they're not going to survive very long. And so what the Doyle does is it creates a sense of legitimacy for the rebels. It gives the people a sense of, of who's in control. In this episode, we'll talk about the Doyle courts. But basically what it does is that it tells the people, we're the people you should be going to if you have problems. We're the people who are going to be, you know, issuing the laws and issuing the orders and bringing an Irish government to Ireland. Three, it creates a central command that the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, has to answer to. So it creates this this early prototype of the civilian-military relations that any functioning state needs to have uh, before it colla- if it doesn't want to collapse. Fourth, it takes the principles that had been espoused by Pierce, by Griffith, to its logical conclusion. Um, as we mentioned during the Easter Rising episode, Ronan Fanny makes a great argument about the problem parliamentary absenteeism, is that if you're not going to sit in parliament, you can't use the power that you've earned through election. So what are you going to do? This is the clear answer to that argument is, well, we're going to create our own parliament and we're just going to rule ourselves, whether Britain likes it or not. Five, I think it is a bit of a, you know, middle finger to Britain as well. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's a ballsy thing to do. Um, if, it, if it had fallen apart within the first three months, it would have been seen as a foolhardy thing to do. I think there might be some people who do argue that it's still a foolhardy thing to do or that it was just propaganda. It had a little value, which I don't think is true at all. It's an escalation point in the conflict between Britain and Ireland. You know, after 1916, Britain had this belief that the Irish rebels were defeated 
that they, you know, it's kind of like this cyclical thing where the Irish rebel, the British put it down, and then they're peaceful for a while, and then they rebel again, and then they're put down, and they're peaceful for a while, and occasionally you'll have people like Daniel O'Connell or Charles Parnell who chip away at British power, but there's never any real sense that Ireland's didn't break away from Britain. Um, so I think the British figured that this was a sim- something similar, that they spent all their energies on the Easterizing the prison system was terrible, so the prisons have broken them. And uh, Sinn Féin is a political party, and it wins huge in 1918 election. So in the British minds, well, they have power, so they have to give in and exercise that power in our parliament because they have no other option. But what the Doyle does then is that it tells Britain, like, well, no, you didn't break us. You've emboldened us. Yes, we won power, but we're going to use the power the way we see fit not within a system that you've created. Although the Doyle was modeled on British Parliament and how the British government functions, but I think that's also just because that's what they knew. <laughs> um, and it works, right? So like, why try to re- recreate something from scratch? So I think it's a very it's a very important symbolic moment. It's a very important in terms of creating a future Irish state. And it's important because it provides the Irish volunteers two avenues in which to fight the British. Um, one is through violence to the Irish volunteers slash IRA slash IRB. And then the other way is through self-governance and parliamentary procedures. The first Doyle, oh, like I said, was formed on January 21st, 1919, and it lasts May 1921, where they hold another series of elections. They create the second Doyle. But within the first Doyle, you have two ministries. So the first ministry is led by the co-chair Tafel Broda, which we talked about just a few minutes ago. And then once De Valera is broken out of jail, they hold another session. April 1st, they hold another session where Broder's ministry steps down. Um, Broder makes a motion that De Valera should be the president of the Doyle. Everyone agrees, and he forms his cabinet, and he amends the constitution. So De Valera changes the constitution so he can have nine members in his cabinet. And so this time, he's president. Secretary for Home Affairs is Arthur Griffith. Secretary for Defense is Kathleen Broder. Secretary for Foreign Affairs is Count Plunkett. Secretary for Labor is Constance Markievicz, the first female. Secretary for Industries is Eowyn McNeil. Secretary for Finance is Michael Collins, and that's what's naming him so famous. Um, Secretary for Local Government is W.T. Cosgrave. De Valera holds the ninth position open for Austin Stats, who is currently in jail. And so once Stats joins the ministry, they'll have all nine positions filled. They will also create rules to allow for um, substitute presidents and ministers in case someone gets arrested or someone's, you know, can't sit in on the meeting or, you know, someone's dead. Um, <laughs> They model themselves on the British Parliament, so they set rules in terms of how often they're going to meet, what are they, you know, what are they going to do, what's the rules and procedures for those meetings, how are they going to govern um, Ireland, and where does the army sit within the Doyle? And so this is this is going to be an ongoing argument from you know 1916 to after the Treaty of Signed, like to like 1924 with the army mutiny. The issue is, as we talked about last episode. Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers developed side by side, but they developed with different goals in mind, different methods in mind. And the Doyle forces them to come together. Not really the Doyle. The army, it's the conscription crisis that forces them to come together, and then Dale is the finalization of that that alliance. But there are a lot of issues that still need to be worked out. And so um, one of those issues is the presence of the IRB within the Irish Volunteers. As we talked about last episode, even within the Irish Volunteers, there was this battle between how much is the IRB control and how much does do members of the Irish Volunteers control. Um, 
And it's no different here. With the Doyle. Broda takes the charge on this. Um, De Valera supports him. But um, Broda really pushes to neutralize the IRB. In his mind, he they don't it's, they don't have a place within modern Ireland. He doesn't see a need for a secret oath-bound society that answers to itself and itself alone. Historians have read this part of his rivalry with Michael Collins. Um, so they time sometimes I think I get the impression that they see it as a personal vendetta and not necessarily a legitimate concern or not as le- legitimate as it could be and. I think some of that is true. I think Broda and Collins, just they were just two completely different people who weren't going to get along. Um, I think they're both very difficult people, from what I can tell. Broda, um, in Easter Rising, he was shot like 20 times, and they all thought he was going to die. Um, whereas Collins didn't really have that much, much of a presence. He seems to have been an orderly for, for Connolly, and he fought, but he doesn't have the same reputation as Broda had after Easter Rising. But because of what he did in Frondock, um, in, in Wales, he comes out of Easter Rising as a very powerful leader within the Irish rebels. And so I think there is some sense of animosity and jealousy from Broda. The other interesting thing is Broda becomes Minister of Defense, which also puts him in conflict with Richard Mulcahy, uh, which we will talk about in depth in, in later episodes, but Broda didn't like him either. He's causing problems, but I don't think he's causing problems solely from a personal vendetta perspective. I think he does have a very good point in the sense of we've created the Doyle, which is a parliamentary body. We're creating an Irish Republic, whatever that means. Because again, as we talked about in the last episode, they still have not defined what an Irish Republic means. At the very least, they can agree that it is a form of Irish government. If the Irish volunteers and the IRA still want to exist, they should be subservient to the civilian government. Which would be the Doyle. Whether you know you like Collins or not, or you might like Mulcahy or not, that's a legitimate argument. So what Broder does is that he pushes that the IRA should swear an oath of allegiance to the Doyle. It becomes a huge point of detention between him and Collins, because Collins recognizes that that oath would subsede the oath that the IRB took to be loyal to each other. And so Collins makes the argument, well, we've already taken a Republican oath, why do we have to take one again? And Broder argues, well, you took the oath before the Dale existed. And it gets dragged out. So I think the oath is officially per- approved August nineteen, August 20th, 1919. But there's, I think I was reading in Charles Townshend's book, The Republic of War for Irish Independence, that it doesn't get implemented until like autumn of 1920 is when it's like officially followed up on and it's confirmed that it's taking the oath. And headquarters tried to enforce the oath, but they really left up to local commander's initiative. And so even the oath becomes this propaganda kind of piece a little bit where in theory it should bind the army to the civilian government, but it wasn't as enforced as maybe as it should have been or it was even said that it was. And even, even to get the oath, passed within the Dale required a compromise where the executive of the Irish Volunteers, or eventually the IRA, would, would serve as an advisory board to the Minister of Defense. And this weird compromise would exist until 1921, where the executive just kind of allows itself to be swallowed by the Minister of Defense, the Ministry of Defense. And so you have this really sharp tension between the militant members of the Irish rebels and those who are trying to form a state government and are trying to, to get control over the, the IRA. But I also think it's really easy to mislead that relationship as something that is malicious 
of something that is purposefully difficult. Again, I don't think, at least at this point in 1919, I don't think it's Collins is being stubborn just to be a pain in the ass and Broder's, you know, pushing for it because he just hates Collins so much and Mulcahy is caught in the middle and he's just on the side of Collins because he doesn't want Broder breathing down his neck all the time. I think it's just this, this natural tension that comes out of trying to force two different organizations with two different great origi- origin, very different origins together into one. And then you have to add on top of that the tension of the Dale is not really legitimate. You have ministers, but what can they really do when they're illegal and they're on the run? And the battle is being fought by the IRA, so they're the ones taking on the most risk and how much control. I mean, General Headquarters has you know minimal control of local forces, as we talked about a little bit last episode, and we'll talk about more in other episodes. What kind of control do you think a minister of defense can have? Collins is minister of finance, but they can't even get him. You know, they can't even rein him on finance completely. And then he starts his own intelligence service, basically. And so I think it's just the frustrations that come out of being a government when you're not really a government. And so I think that's why people come hard on the Doyle as well, is because they have all these high hopes and dreams and they mean well and they're saying these great things. But in reality, how are they exerting their power? How can they exert their power? But then on the other hand, two of the biggest successes of the Doyle. Um, is financially and judicially. Financially, it's Collins, right? Collins becomes Minister of Finance. The Doyle slash IRA realize that they are reliant on contributions from America. Um, it's not always easy to get that money into Ireland. It's not always consistent. And their own people. But they can't collect taxes because Britain's already collecting taxes and they can't take that money from Britain because the British government either ignores the Dale or refuses to acknowledge that the Dale is a legitimate body. Um, and they don't want to tax their people more because they're some of them barely are barely surviving as it is. So what can they do? So Collins creates this ingenious, complicated bond system um, where a lot of people are just voluntarily giving money, basically, to the Dale and the IRA. And that is a huge source, I think, of getting people used to the idea that the Doyle, the legitimate government, not Britain. And it's a great way of extending the power of the Doyle out of Dublin and then eventually the IRA um, out of Dublin and allows certain units to take, you know, financial initiatives and just giving them more power and more confidence in themselves and then the people's confidence in the units as well. Like all things that the IRA and the, and the Doyle did, it's not enforced 100%. It's not 100% effective. Collins would complain and complain that certain counties do not give as much as other counties, and some counties are overperforming, and other counties are not overperforming, and he will become very protective of his scheme. And then, again, people like Broda and De Valera will try to put their nose into that type of business, and then Collins, you know, gets all upset, and it just does not, doesn't end well for anybody. The second biggest victory for the, for the Doyle are the Doyle Courts, uh, which they create that in June 18th, 1919. The Doyle Court replaced the British Courts. You have the parish-based arbitration courts, you have the district courts, and I think Kathleen Clark actually sits on the district court for Dublin. And then you have the Supreme Court. Um, and, and very quickly, the Irish people recognize the Doyle courts as a legitimate source of justice. And a lot of the law officials, like people who you would think would rely on the British justice system to work, they have no problem doing the Doyle courts. They see it as legitimate as the British courts, maybe even more so. And I think that comes from just you know these people, right? You're probably neighbors with them, or you've worked with them. You know they're maybe more just than the British are. Um, like I said in the last episode, 
because Sinn Féin has spent like a year pounding this idea that you can't trust the the RIC, the Royal Irish Constables. You can't trust the justice system. They're out against you. You know, Britain's against you. You create this whole entire complex um, underground justice system that replaces the British justice system. It's, it's actually a really amazing accomplishment for the Doyle. So how did England respond to this? Um, as I said earlier in this episode, and I talked about a little bit last episode, when Sinn Féin won such a huge victory in the 1918 election, they just assumed that power and prestige and money was going to trump any ideal that the Irish candidates had. And so they fully expected Sinn Féin to just replace the IDP in British Parliament and things would go on as normal. So when the Doyle was created... I think they were taken aback a little bit, but I don't think they took it seriously. Lord French basically just ignored what happened, and he said that he would decide the type of government that would rule Ireland. And as we talked last episode, Lord French was the new military governor sent to Ireland to control the Irish people. And, like, Westminster doesn't really seem to acknowledge it. They kind of treat it as a fad that's going to collapse on itself. And then I think a couple of things happen. One... De Valera, after he becomes president of the Dale, decides that he's then going to go to America on June 1919 to go speak about the Irish cause and to raise funds. And while he's gone, he meets Arthur Griffith, um, his deputy president, and then Austin Satz takes over the Ministry of um, Home Affairs. But I think this is a huge warning sign for Britain. You know, ever since World War One, Britain is very nervous about its relationships with America. It needed America to come in during the war. Um, it had been relying on American supplies and money and, and munitions to fight the war. And so it's very, very sensitive of anything that's going to jeopardize that relationship with America. And I think even at this point, I think the, uh, the Treaty of Versailles is still being negotiated. Um, and they don't want Ireland included in any of the, of the terms that determine self-determination for people. So like during the Treaty of Versailles, you know, they're saying that Poland should have its own nation, and the Czechs should have their own nation, and, you know, the Hungarians have their own nation, and Britain does not want Ireland to be thrown into that list of, of small nations, although, of course, that's what Ireland wants, and that's one of the reasons why they're going to America, and they do try to, to get access to the peace, the Paris Conference, and they're denied. But it doesn't, it just doesn't look good when the president of a, you know, a fake president of a fake government is going to visit your ally. That doesn't look good for anybody. Also, like I said, in June, the Doyle courts were created. And I think that also, I mean, that I think is even a more serious threat to British power than Dev going to America, is that undermines your law and order, that undermines, and it, it goes a long way to undermining your authority. So I think there's just a couple of things that happen that make England realize that they need to take the Doyle more seriously. So in September, they, they make it illegal. And that just makes things more difficult for <laughs> for the members of the Doyle. Because they have to constantly rotate where they're meeting. Their offices are constantly being raided by British officers. The ministers are constantly on the run. They're occasionally arrested and thrown in jail. They become targets of the British government. I think in like 1920, they start putting out ransom posters for people like Collins and Mulcahy and I think Braga as well. So it mates... It makes everything more difficult, but it doesn't stop the Doyle. It makes things more difficult, and again, that's one of the reasons the Doyle isn't as successful as it could be. And that's why it's not able to enforce as many things as it wants to enforce. And in some ways, being a minister kind of doesn't mean anything, except in a propaganda sense. But like I said earlier, they're still able to do the courts, they're still able to raise funds, and 
the Ministry of Defense and General Headquarters are able to exert some control over the Irish forces, despite the fact that they are now wanted by the British. America, for its part, has a very disinterested relationship with Ireland at this point. There's no way Woodrow Wilson was going to interfere with British territories. And there's still a bad taste um, in people's mouths regarding the German plot. Not the one where they arrested the the Irish representatives because they were planning an uprising, but during the Easter Rising... They went, the, the, riot, the planners of Easter Rising went to Germany for assistance. And everyone remembers that still, and no one is very happy about that. So the Irish cause kind of shot themselves in the foot by doing that. But at the same time, when Dev goes to America, he gets a huge reception. He, I think he goes to New York first. He has a huge reception by the, the Irish Americans. The, you know, there's Irish Americans in Boston, New York, I think, I think in Philadelphia, and in Chicago who are raising funds for the IRA. They're supporting... Irish right for freedom. And so there is that huge pressure there. And so Woodrow Wilson can't be completely dismissive, but he has to kind of walk this fine line of tolerating a nation that wants to break away from an imperial power by force and also not angering his um, Irish American constituents. He's also very distracted, like I said, by the Treaty of Versailles. He has problems in Congress. Congress is not happy with him. Federally, I think, and countrywide, the Irish cause does not have as huge an impact on America as they hope, but I think in certain localities it does, and I don't think the IRA would have existed without the Irish-American support. A shorter episode today, but I just wanted to give a brief overview of the formation of the Doyle, how it affected the development of the IRA, and how it introduced some of the challenges that the IRA would struggle with during the Anglo-Irish War. also wanted to stress the importance of understanding both the military component of an asymmetrical conflict as well as the political component. Because a lot of times, just like in regular warfare, the military men have to make decisions based on political constraints. Um, and I think this is particularly true in in Ireland. And it's also good background to have when studying not just the Anglo-Irish War, but the Irish Civil War, and then the formation of the Free Irish State. Because many of the issues that the Doyle has and the Doyle faces issues that the Free Irish State will face during the initial, its first decade or so. Thank you for uh, joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find all of our episodes on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as on Spotify and iTunes and SoundCloud, actually. Also follow us on Twitter at A-O-A-S-Y-M, Warfare. Until next time, Stay safe. Please wash your hands. Don't go outside except for emergencies. Uh, 